Well, all right. Well, I'm honored to be here. I do bring greetings from uh, my family, and uh, we do have, I do have my wife of 23 years, Dana, and eight children. We have twin 17-year-old boys. I mean, a boy and a girl, twins. I, I get them all mixed up, but uh, <laughs> twin uh, 17-year-olds, a boy and a girl. I have a 15-year-old son, a 15-year-old daughter, a 13-year-old, or almost 13-year-old daughter, a uh, nine-year-old son, an eight-year-old daughter, and an eight-year-old son. And uh, Eden and Peyton, they're from Taiwan. Spencer is from the D.C. area. Um, Willa is from China, and Brewer is from China. So our first three are biological, the other five are adopted. So when people ask me, do I know what's causing all this, the answer is absolutely, I do know. I, I, have, uh, I have the receipts uh, to show. <laughs> um, when, uh, in, in November of 2004, my wife and I went to Taipei, Taiwan to pick up Eden and Peyton. They were five and a half and three and a half at the time, and so we got to Taipei on a Sunday, spent the day there, got up the next morning, met the girls, got the girls, spent the day with the girls, went to bed that night in Taipei, and about 11 o'clock at night, I felt myself being shaken out of bed. I was sleeping on a cot, the girls were in bed with Dana, and at the time I thought uh, she was just nudging my bed to get me to quit snoring or something, but when I woke up, not only was my bed shaking, but the whole building was shaking and swaying back and forth. And at the time in our marriage, uh, we had been in a hurricane, a flood, and a tornado, and that night uh, we were in our first and only earthquake. My wife woke up and she said, Randy, what is it? I said, it's an earthquake. She said, how do you know? I'm like, what, are we going to get in an argument about this? <laughs> we're getting ready to meet Jesus, and uh, our last words are, how do you know? I mean, we're arguing, you know, they're just right into the presence of Jesus, right in the middle of an argument. Because <clears throat> I... I mean, what, what else could this be? I, I don't think we're being bombed, and Godzilla lives in Tokyo. Everybody knows that. Uh, I mean, what else could this be? It's an earthquake. So I called down to the hotel operator, who was conveniently located on the first floor, and he, he spoke some broken English, and he said, uh, I said, is everything okay? He said, everything fine. And I said, was that an earthquake? He said, yes. I said, was it big or small? He said, it seemed quite big. <laughs> That one I know, I'm from Florida. <clears throat> so the craziest thing was the, for the next four, four days we, had to, we were there, and it was the aftershocks. Now, again, I've never been in an earthquake. I certainly never experienced aftershocks, but I have watched television, and I'm pretty sure when the ground shakes beneath your feet, you're supposed to stop whatever you're doing and look up. I mean, that's just what everybody on TV does. That's not what they do in Taipei. You know why? Because they're used to it. Isn't that amazing? That... Something, I mean, the ground shaking beneath your feet is supposed to be a bone-jarring event. It is not, you are not supposed to get used to the ground shaking beneath your feet, but you can, apparently, and thousands of people in Taipei, Taiwan have already have done it. <clears throat> but that's why it's good and right for us to pull away on occasion, like we are tonight, and for tonight and tomorrow, uh, and just ask ourselves, are we, are we getting used to things we're not supposed to get used to? I mean, it's just easy to do. You're not even a bad person if you do it. Uh, you're in a culture that is constantly pushing against what you're trying to do as a Christian man. And it is easy to breathe this air and to drink this water and to wake up at a certain period of time and realize, man, I think I've gotten used to some things that I just shouldn't be getting used to. 
And so that's why it's good and right to do this. And this is a great place to do it. This is, is a historic place for uh, folks from the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, that's, that, I don't think they own this anymore, but they used to for decades. And I just want you to consider how many thousands of people over the last few decades that have come to this place and God's met them here. Thousands of life-changing decisions, thousands. And it's not because of the great speakers. It's because God's a great God and God cares for you. He wants good for you and not evil as evidenced in the sending of his own son to die on a cross for your sin. And so he wants good for you and not evil. And my prayer is that hopefully God would use something I say this weekend, but I believe in the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit can work in your heart regardless of what I do or don't do. We're going to have a great time this weekend, but this weekend is not about uh, beat up the men uh, time. Uh, we're going to go through some teaching. I do believe, and I've been praying that God would show up here and that God would minister to your soul while you're here. Some of you might make some decisions about things you need to do a little different. That's not the only thing this is about. Uh, sometimes you just need to get away and thank God for his goodness in your life. Thank God for his faithfulness in your life. Uh, some of you are not very old, but some of you are. Some of you are old enough to say, I once was young, but now I'm old, and I've never seen the righteous forsaken. Some of you need to be reminded of that. Some of you older guys need to tell these younger guys that, because they need to hear it with some, from somebody with some gray in their hair, right? So I'm excited about the father-son element. I see a lot of younger men, or maybe some of you young men came with your dads, but either way, it's an older generation mixed with a younger generation in here, whether or not you're biologically related or not. And that's a, and that's a good thing. That's a, that's a healthy thing. That's important in the body of Christ. Why? Because the older men are to be like fathers to the younger men. And whether or not you're biologically related or not has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with the fact that every younger generation is watching the older generation. Every younger generation is following along the older generation. When, when my boys were about eight and six, and I had one daughter at the time. We came home from a vacation one year, and all of, our, all of the belongings in the garage were in the backyard, bats and balls and golf clubs and tennis rackets, and I knew we didn't leave them out there, and a neighbor finally came over and said, yeah, the boys that live behind you broke into your garage while y'all were gone, and they played with all your stuff, and we told them to get out of your yard, but... <clears throat> We think they might have taken some things. So sure enough, we took a quick inventory and there's several things that weren't there. <clears throat> and so the boys were all amped up. Dad, we're gonna call the police, let's call the police. I said, well, look, we're not gonna call the police because that guy, that dad probably doesn't even know his boys did that. And so we're gonna go over there. I said, in the morning, we're gonna get up, go over there, and I'm gonna show you how neighbors handle these things. All right, we're neighbors, we're gonna handle it like neighbors. So we get up the next morning because I had every intention of going over there and talking to the dad and. So my boys, God bless them, come down the next morning in full camo. <laughs> Boots, shirt, hat, everything. And I'm sure with a pocket knife, ready to go. And they sat down and they were real quiet in the living room. I said, are you boys nervous? Yes, sir. Why are you nervous? Because we're going over there to fight that family, aren't we? <laughs> well, no. <laughs> but it was kind of heartwarming, right? I mean, you just think that eight-year-old and six-year-old boy got up that next morning they really believe that I don't I didn't tell them we were doing that. They just thought that's how dad's gonna handle it. And we're going over there and we're gonna fight them. 
And they actually got up and showed up <laughs> to go down with their dad. I mean, if I go down, they're going down, and then it kicked me in the gut, because if I go down, they're going down, right? I mean, uh, and that's just true for all of us. Uh, somebody's coming behind us, even if, even if you don't have boys, or if your boys are grown, if you are committed to your local church, there's somebody coming behind you, and they're watching, and what young men need are grown men to show them the way and to show them how it's done. Book of Proverbs is about that. My son, listen to your father. My son, listen to your father. My son, listen to your father. Solomon, <clears throat> having learned a lot of lessons in his life, now he's worried about the next generation. And that's who we're going to talk about tonight. Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Kings 2, 1 through 9, and I'll read that passage. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and whatever you do. And wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their ways, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in the time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the belt, blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for with such loyalty they met me <clears throat> when I fled from Absalom your brother. And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, from Bahirim, and cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I am not going to put you to death with the sword. Now therefore do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You'll know what you ought to do, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. <clears throat> what we have here is the last words of a Father to a son. These are important words. I mean, this, these are some of the last words. David is going to die. He calls Solomon in. I got to hear some last words from my grandfather three years ago. He knew he was sick. Took my whole family down there. I have a picture of him giving last words to my oldest son and my second oldest son. I only had two sons at the time. And we went down there, and I have a picture of my grandfather in a wheelchair holding the shoulders of my oldest son. Now, my grandfather was a colorful man. He could have said anything in that moment. I was getting a picture of it. I was hoping this was going to be good and memorable, and he did, he did not disappoint. But he could have said anything, but you know what he said? Listen to your father. Listen to your father. It's, it's what happens when you, when you start thinking about the next generation. You just kind of know 
what needs to be said. And he's, he's thinking about a, a third and fourth and fifth generation of Stinsons. And he sees at the key to it is listen to your father. And here we have David basically implying to Solomon, I'm getting ready to die. Listen to your own father. Uh, listen to what I'm about to tell you. Most, <clears throat> most definitions of manhood, Christian manhood, focus on the Christian part, but not enough on the specific manhood part. When I was in college, we had a group of guys and a group of gals, and we met in two separate rooms, and the men were supposed to write on one board characteristics of a biblical man, and the ladies were supposed to write on the other board the characteristics of a biblical woman. They were going to get together and talk about it. Well, we started putting things on our board like he needs to have love and peace and patience and kindness and it was good stuff. It was the fruit of the Spirit. But somebody in the group asked, what is it that we're putting on this board that the girls could not put? Because the girls could be putting the same thing on their board in there and should be. But what is it about specifically about men? What is, is there a specific charge? Are we just all the same? Or is there something specific that men are being asked to do? And there are Christian men and women. There, there are no generic people. There are male human beings and female human beings, and there are no generic Christians. There are male Christians and female Christians. And, and in terms of discipleship, your gender really does matter in terms of how God is going to use you, what responsibilities he's called you to, the things to which he's going to hold you accountable. And so while most passages in the Bible that deal specifically with manhood or womanhood do it in the context of marriage, this one does it in the context of a father and a son. The first thing that David does talk about is the character of manhood. He says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. I'm getting ready to die. Be strong and show yourself a man. Be strong and be a man. Do what men do. Now, why is he concerned about this? <clears throat> why is he concerned about Solomon being a man? Well, I think one reason is David grew up he was a shepherd. He was a warrior. He was in battle. He had a hard, difficult, challenging life. Solomon grew up in David's palace. Solomon is just a little bit softer. Let's just face it. He's got people bringing him stuff, making him sandwiches. I envision him walking around in his terry cloth robe with his initials on it and people waiting on him hand and foot. He hasn't had the life that David had. And so I think David's a little concerned. This guy's getting ready to be king. And he just has not had to endure a hardship as much as David had at this point in his life. And David knew what hardship was like, and it shaped him and formed him. So he's saying, look, you're going to have to be strong, and you're going to have to do what a man does. Be a man. Now, what is the first thing that he says a man does? Well, there's a particular character to it. He says, be strong. It's going to demonstrate strength. But it's not pull yourself up by your own bootstrap strength. I want to make that very clear this entire weekend. This we'll have some fun hoorah moments, but this isn't about just who can kill the most animals, although that's fun, or who can bench press the most, or that's that'd be nice if you're the winner of that contest, but or who's the best athlete? That's not what this is about. Uh, this is about character. This is about context. This is about exercising dominion over the earth and it's not a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, just do better, be better, work harder. There's grace in it, but it's connected. This strength is connected to the word of God, to the statutes, to the commandments, to his testimonies, as is written in the law of Moses. Now, the law of Moses is very important in this context 
because Moses not only wrote the law, but also wrote Deuteronomy 17, which is a law specifically designed for kings. Some instruction. Kings were not supposed to have many horses for themselves or many chariots for themselves. The first thing that a king was supposed to do is handwrite a copy of the law. Handwrite it. It's Deuteronomy 17. Sit down and handwrite your own copy of the law. Now that, that takes commitment. And I guarantee you, maybe, I don't guess you've written out a handwritten copy of the Bible for yourself, but if you did, I think you'd know it pretty well. I think that would be a, an added way. It would be forged into your heart, forged into your mind. And that's what a king was supposed to do, handwrite his own copy. Why? Because it needed to be infused into his heart, his mind, and his soul. And that was one way to do it. He wasn't supposed to have a lot of silver, a lot of gold. He wasn't supposed to marry many women. He wasn't supposed to marry foreign women. This will become very important a little bit later. But a man of God must first know what God has said and then incline his heart to obey it. David is just underscoring the point that if you're going to be strong and prove yourself a man, the very first part of it, the very foundation of it, is understanding the Word of God, believing the Word of God, and then doing the Word of God. That's at the heart of biblical manhood. That's at the heart of biblical womanhood, though. So the second part of this has to do with context in this particular passage, because if you can imagine Solomon giving last, or David giving last words to a daughter, he very easily could have given that first encouragement. Do what God says. Understand the Word of God. Why? Because every human being, man or woman, is supposed to obey God. We're supposed to exhibit the fruit of Spirit. We're supposed to obey the one another's of the Scriptures. We're supposed to obey the Ten Commandments. So everybody has a certain foundation from which they're operating. And yet here in the second section of the passage, there's a context in which this would be lived out. Joab shed blood in a time of peace. And David tells Solomon, you better go deal with that guy. You're going to have to go deal with that guy. But then he has to deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite. Why? Because the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, when Absalom was chasing David, trying to kill David, they gave David refuge. And David promised them that for the rest of my years, you'll, live, you'll, you'll be at my table. And that could mean literally, but most likely it means figuratively, meaning that they're going to be provided for. And David is now telling Solomon, you make provision. You make provision for those boys and their family because they cared for me and I promised them I would care for them. And now you've got to carry that on. And then my favorite one, Shimei, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite. He cursed, he cursed David. And David went down to meet him and David said, I won't put you to death. I won't put you to death by the sword. And he tells, he's telling Solomon, I told him I wouldn't put him to death, but I didn't tell him you wouldn't, so you go kill him. I mean, that's exactly what he's telling him to do here. I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with a sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless. You're a wise man. You'll know what to do, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. I didn't say I wouldn't kill him, but I, I said I wouldn't, but I didn't say you wouldn't. Now, you go do it. These, these would not be the last words to a daughter, right? Because there's a context here. There's a context in which men are going to live out the Christian life in a way that looks different from women. And our assignment is different. And our challenges are going to be different. David's instruction here has a particularly masculine context to it. And most of us know this instinctively. 
<clears throat> Most unbelievers know this instinctively. Why? Because this is not just some mere sociological construct where we just learned it. This is wired in. Wired in. Men lead, men provide, men protect. Most of you know this intuitively. Even in a fallen world where the image of God is marred by the fall, there's still the image there and the relic of the image is still there. And that's why we still instinctively know what our role is in certain situations, even if the culture is trying to introduce confusion. So right after the 9-11 attacks, I had, to, I had to fly in November. They happened in September. Two months later, I had to fly in November. And if you had to fly back then, you, you know, people were really nervous. Delta Airlines was giving quadruple miles if anybody would just fly anywhere. And so I got on a plane, got quadruple miles, landed in Atlanta airport. And as soon as I got off the plane, alarms were going off, Delta agents were yelling for everybody to get out of the building and everybody was getting out of the building and a lot of people were panicking because they thought this was going to be another bombing and so what happened is, is they were evacuating the building and everybody's running and women are crying, kids are crying, men are crying and it's, it was chaos. <clears throat> and out of the corner of my eye I saw an elderly woman standing over here and she was kind of paralyzed just looked like she didn't know what to do. And so I walked over to her and I put my arm around her. And I said, ma'am, I'm scared. Will you hold me? I didn't say that. <laughs> no, no, I didn't say that. I was like, you, you don't even know what to think if I said that, right? You know, I didn't say that. <clears throat> but every one of you know that's wrong, that it's wrong. If I was standing in a room of unbelievers, they would know that is right. Yeah, a 30, I was 30-something. 30 a 30-something-year-old man does not go to an elderly woman in the middle of a crisis and say, Ma'am, I'm scared. Will you hold me? You know it. I know it. Almost, you go to another culture and they know it. Why? Because it's wired in. Now, it's marred by the fall. But it's still, it's still wired in. It's, it's why, you know the old joke, uh, you, you don't lay in the bed in the middle of the night with your wife and hear a noise downstairs and nudge her and say, honey, you go deal with it, right? You know you don't do that. Why? Because you wouldn't send her in harm's way. It doesn't matter. She's a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. That doesn't matter. You go down there and you might end up in a pool of your own blood and she comes in and bails you out, but at least you went down there first and tried. <laughs> Biblical manhood has the same moral and spiritual constraints. But it has a very different context. Because we're called to do different things. But then, one of the key contexts of this passage that points us to 1 Kings 9, 10, 11, and 12 is what points us to all of Solomon's failures to live up to these ideals that David laid out, and especially ones Moses laid out, which means it points us to Christ. <clears throat> a lot of times people have a hard time understanding the Old Testament because it has a lot of history and geography and all the tribes and all the different geographical centers. But if you read the Old Testament, there's a, there are other ways to understand the Old Testament. Jesus is... The Bible says our perfect, perfect prophet, priest, and king. So when you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament is largely about prophets, priests, and kings. And in either case, it's always pointing us to Jesus. 
If it's a poor prophet, poor priest, or poor king, it's pointing us to the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And if it's a good prophet, good priest, or good king, it's pointing us to even our better and more perfect prophet, priest, and king. So everything is pointing us to Jesus. And King Solomon fails at so many levels. He points us and reminds us to Jesus. Jesus dem demonstrated perfect manhood. Isn't that amazing? Perfect manhood. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. He was, he was biologically male. And that doesn't mean he can't relate to females. It doesn't mean that he can't save females. But it's just a sheer fact. He lived on this earth as a male human being. 100% God, 100% man. And so he was the perfect man. Solomon broke every rule that Moses laid out. The Bible lists out for us how, just how many horses he had and how many chariots he had. And as the author of 1 Kings just saying, look at this, look at this. Moses said don't have very many. He has this many. Moses said don't, <clears throat> don't amass a lot of gold for yourself, but all of his drinking vessels were inlaid with gold. Moses said don't, don't amass silver for yourself and the Bible makes it clear that silver was so plentiful during the days of Solomon that it was worth nothing. Now I want you to consider what that means. If you're an economist, you know what that means. It means it was so plentiful, you couldn't sell it. It means if you need some money right now, if you took a cup and went out there and filled it full of dirt and tried to sell it, you're not getting anything for it. Why? Because there's just so much of it out there. there. There's piles of it out there. It's so plentiful, it's worth nothing. Moses said, don't amass a lot of silver for yourself. Solomon had amassed so much silver, it was like dirt, worthless. And then he was supposed to not marry foreign women, but he did. He wasn't supposed to marry many women, but he did. In fact, he married so many foreign women, he had to build places of worship so that they could worship their false gods. Do you see how far... He came. But it just reminds us of the perfections of Christ, of, of Christ cleansing the temple, tipping over tables and chairs, and not sinning, by the way. Calling the Pharisees and the Sadducees whitewashed tombs with courage and conviction, and then showing compassion to the woman at the well and the woman caught in adultery. Too many men have just an unbiblical view of Christ. They think he's, they have a picture in their mind of some child's Sunday school literature where <clears throat> he's got flowing hair and rosy cheeks and a sheep nuzzling his cheek. That's not Jesus. Jesus didn't look like 80 or 90% of the artistic renditions that we have of him. He, there's no way he could have. It'd be impossible for him to look like that. He lived in the Middle East. He walked everywhere, outdoors. They didn't have 50 protection sunblock. His skin was dark and dry. I guarantee it has to have been. He grew up in the home of a carpenter. They didn't have power tools. That guy is sawing and hammering with his own hands. He had calluses. Had to have had calluses on his hands. Mu developed muscles. My dad, uh, you, I mean, some of you work with your hands. You're, you're, you're just, my dad was a lineman for the power company his whole life. My dad's forearms were that big around. 
And his legs were huge because he climbed, they, he, they didn't have all those bucket trucks, you know? I mean, they're just climbing with spikes on their legs. And his, his forearms, he would do like any good dad would do. I'd get in the side, in the passenger seat of his truck and we'd be going down the road and he'd grab the steering wheel and say, hey son, look at this. And he'd squeeze the steering wheel. Muscles are popping out everywhere. He's just showing off for <clears throat> his son. Jesus worked with his hands. He walked everywhere. His, his hair would not have been perfectly combed and coiffed like all the pictures show. Jesus is not a Hollywood figure. He was a real man that walked this earth, lived in the Middle East. This is what the Bible says about him. His eyes are a flame of fire. His head is full of crowns. His robe is dipped in blood. He has a sword coming from his mouth. On his robe is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He will judge and make war. And he will strike down nations as an act of his righteousness. So Jesus is not a precious moments figurine. Jesus was the God-man. And Jesus lived a perfect life. And he said what needed to be said. He spoke the truth with courage. He showed righteous indignation without sinning. And Jesus is our example. There's a Christ-likeness to manhood that we always need to be aware of. But then finally, <clears throat> what I would want to point to is what I would call the cultivation of manhood. Manhood can be cultivated, just like humility. God can cultivate humility in your life, and how will He do that? He'll bring in certain situations and certain opportunities and certain people, certain problems. He wants you to endure hardship like a good soldier, and He'll bring in certain people and certain problems and certain situations. <clears throat> David's young life is easy to recall at this point. There's a context even to how David is talking to Solomon. Be strong and prove yourself a man. This is not the first time they've talked about this. I mean, David killed Goliath. I mean, if you're a dad and you killed Goliath, and that was a part of the, all the whole scope and history of all the people of God, and you killed Goliath, how many times do you think you'd be telling that story, story to your boys? My boys would be sick of hearing it. And then on top of that, David killed a bear with his bare hands, a lion with his bare hands. I mean, I still try to regale my boys with a home run I hit when I was 12 years old or something like that. I mean, if you kill Goliath, I mean, this is, these are not new. Solomon is well aware of his father's past and what he's accomplished. And <clears throat> but David, David goes to Saul. He says, hey, that... That guy's taunting the people of God. I'm going to go out there and kill him. And Saul says, no, you're not. He says, yes, I am. I've already killed a bear and a lion with my bare hands. And then he says something interesting. He says, God delivered me from the bear and the lion. You know why he said that? Because he's acknowledging he didn't do this in his own strength. Yes, his hands were the ones that grappled with the bear and grappled with the lion. It was a real physical act between animal and man, but he's acknowledging God delivered me. This again is a reminder to us that even then, David is not suggesting that this is a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of living before God. You can't do that. In fact, you will be more tempted to do that than to trust in the God of this universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will more want to Trust in your own strength. And even David is acknowledging these things that have gone on in my life, God did it. God did it. 
But God put those things in David's life to cultivate an inclination to do certain things. I mean, David was a shepherd. Now, a shepherd watching sheep was actually a very dangerous task because you're out in the wilderness. You're not in a pinned-in area. You're out in the wilderness, and there's no street lights. You don't probably you, know, you don't have a gun. You may have a knife. You've got a staff, but you're out there with bears and lions tending bear and lion food. I mean, it's just come and get it. These sheep are not smart, okay? They're not smart animals. Now, just think about this. Bear comes out. David fights the bear and kills the bear. I got to tell you, you kill a bear with your bare hands and you wake up the next day with a little more confidence in God, right? Right? I mean, you just do. You kill a lion? I mean... You ever seen a lion up close? I mean, I've been, I have, I've been to the zoo, okay? So I'm alligator maybe, but uh, zoo. I'm sticking with the zoo on the, on the lion. The king of the beast, right? There's a reason why they're called the king of the beast. Those things can get up to eight or 900 pounds. They're massive animals. David, I don't know how big the one David killed, but it doesn't matter. Bare hands. You kill a lion with your bare hands? and you acknowledge God in it, you just wake up the next day with a little more confidence and a little more faith in God. Now, I don't know what David thought when that happened. We don't know, and I'm not even going to speculate. But what he could have thought is, what in the world is happening to me? Here am I just trying to honor my dad and tend these sheep, and i, I got to fight a lion? What is the matter with you, God? What is the matter? What, what is the matter with everything's wrong in the universe? Now a bear... Come on. Why can't you just be nice to me? I'm honoring my dad. I'm working hard. I'm not out doing bad things. <clears throat> I don't think David did that. I don't think he did. I think we do that. Because what I want to say to all is, what did you expect? I mean, because think about it. We all kind of wake up thinking everything's going to work out for us, unless you're like a really bad pessimist, okay? Unless you're just a really bad pessimist, you just kind of wake up expecting. That's why you get so frustrated when it doesn't. You have every expectation. Everything's going to work out. That bad conversation is going to all work out in my favor. He's going to respond exactly how he's supposed to respond. He's going to thank me for correcting him. And he's going to give me a high five. And we're going to go on out. And I've won my brother. That doesn't always happen. That hard conversation you have to have with your kids or your wife. You kind of envision it all happening for you. But that's why we end up with so much disappointment every day. And I think David has learned to expect God is going to bring something. God's going to bring things into your life. He just is. He probably brought something in your life today. What I want to encourage you to do is view those things as not just trials, but actual more specific opportunities that God has put into your life and things that he's put in your life so that you will cultivate a growing biblical masculinity. So here are some ways that men on a daily basis, under the Lordship of Christ. So again, this isn't just Oprah or Dr. Phil. It's under the Lordship of Christ, God working in your life, you trusting God to be working in your life through the Holy Spirit to be bringing things into your life. And here's one thing. Do the hardest task first. Do the hardest task first. One of the enemies of biblical manhood is passivity. And one of the ways to cultivate passivity is to put things off. If you keep putting things off, you will train yourself to put things off. And that is at the heart of passivity, avoiding what needs to be done. 
And so every week, every day, but probably every week minimum, you have things that you're going to have to do. And I try to order mine the best I can to do the hardest things. That's why even, I mean, it's the rule of moving, right? When you're helping somebody move, what do you do? You move the heaviest stuff first. Why? To get it out of the way so as the day grows on, you just, the easier stuff is there. But it, it, just, it just puts you in attack mode and not wait and let it happen mode. So attack your hardest task of the day without delay. But number two, make the hard phone call first. Some of you are good with the tasks. You're good with the projects because they don't typically involve people. But number two, I would say make the hardest phone call first. This is where people are involved. Some of you have a more heightened fear of man than others. You're not, nobody's mad at you for that. But the Bible does deal with this quite a bit in the New Testament in particular, fearing man as opposed to God. And so some, some of us, for all sorts of reasons, have more of a heightened fear of man than we should. And we can get the project done that doesn't involve people, but when it comes to people, we put it off. We don't want to have the hard conversation. We don't want to fire somebody or correct somebody or apologize to somebody, and so we put those off. But I do the same thing with my hard conversations that I do with my hard tasks. I try to order them so that I have the hardest one first. If I know I need to apologize to somebody, I don't wait till the end of the week. I don't wait till the end of the week on that just for spiritual reasons on my part, just <clears throat> because if I have to apologize, that should be done as soon as possible. But I've been tempted plenty of times, just I'll do it tomorrow. Why? Because this is no fun. And then tomorrow comes, I'll do it Wednesday. Wednesday will be a better day. Well, Thursday, actually, I've got, I've got a clear schedule Thursday. I can schedule it any time all day. What am I doing? I'm just, I'm just teaching myself to be passive. What I should be doing is addressing the things as they come. Number three, and this one can be tricky for different personalities, but I'm going to throw it in here anyway. Run to the battle. Now, I didn't say start the battle. Some of you, you like love a battle, right? And some of you are more prone to argumentation. And if you're not in a battle, you think, you think it's, the world isn't right. And so you got to be in it, in it with somebody. Well, I'm not saying be an argumentative person. I'm not saying start the battle, but I'm saying if there is one, a man should take a step toward it. I don't mean dive in, but I mean take a step toward it. I'm trying to train my sons that when there's a problem, in the, if the problem is in their purview, and by that I mean it's in front of them, it's in their area, it's, it's where they are, then in God's providence, they're involved. They're there. And now the, the thing isn't to run and say, that's somebody else's problem. No, God made it your problem. He put it there so you could see it, hear it, feel it. You're there. So now it doesn't mean, though, that you immediately dive in. You may not know anything about how to solve the problem. I don't, I don't jump into problems I don't know anything about. It could be an emergency where even if you don't know, you've got to get, get involved and intervene and do your best with the situation you've got. It could be that it's not an emergency and... It is a problem, but you have time to get somebody else involved. I'm teaching my boys that when there's a problem, when there's something in front of them, they just take a step toward it. I didn't say they just run into it like fools. They just take a step toward it, not a step back and say, whoa, that's not for me. No, take a step toward it. All conflict should not be avoided. Some should, and I don't pretend to know every time it should or shouldn't be. And I certainly wouldn't know how to tell you every time it should or shouldn't be. Sometimes 
A soft answer turns away wrath. Sometimes someone has to be corrected. Sometimes someone has to be confronted. And so men who think all conflict ought to be avoided actually could potentially harm the body of Christ by not being willing to stand in the gap and protect. We're, we're made to protect. God wired us up to protect. <clears throat> and that can be physical, but that, that certainly and most often will not be physical. I, I haven't had to be getting a fist fight since I was in college. Uh, but I have had to spiritually protect by my words and by what I would allow someone to do and not allow them to do, what I would allow them to teach, what I wouldn't allow them to teach, how I even care for my children and my whole family and my wife in terms of different scenarios that come into our life. I'm called to protect. I'm called to run to the battle Number four, do your work now as opposed to later. This again is just similar to number one, but it's just little things like term papers, tax filing. Don't allow these things to rule over you. It's about dominion. Doing them in a timely order. Number five is keep your domain in order. One more and we're done. Keep your domain in order. <clears throat> While most of us on occasion have a messy desk or a car trunk or something, a messy, a messy life is a life of disorder. God, in Genesis 1, gave the same command to both men and women, exercise dominion and subdue the earth. It's why, it's why we pay, or at least people in Florida, pay a lot of money to go to a place like SeaWorld. You know why they go to SeaWorld? Because they love to watch that killer whale that weighs 10 tons being commanded by a five foot two, hundred pound woman and all she's using is hand signals and a whistle. That's called dominion. And we pay money to see it, right? We pay money. If you ever hunted with a bird dog, I'd pay money to do that. I have friends that have them. I mean, it's just with a yelp and a hand signal. I mean, the dog is getting the bird, pointing the bird, fetching the bird, bringing the bird not closing his mouth so tight that he ruins the bird. It's, it, that's dominion. It's dominion. It's why we pay money to go to a circus and watch a guy with lions in a cage that could eat him or watch him do something, make the elephant stand up like this, like a girl. And that elephant could crush this guy, but we pay money to see it. Why? Because it resonates in our soul because it's how God made us to exercise dominion and subdue the earth. That's why this is not about bench pressing or sports or <clears throat> hunting. It's about dominion and, and order, bringing order to the world around you. Now, that's an incredible challenge because we're in a fallen world and the world is full of disorder. It's part of the curse. Now, your work <clears throat> is going to be fraught with what? Thorns and thistles and obstacles in your way. That's why it's work your home, your dorm room, your garage. I mean, honestly, what does your garage look like? What's the trunk of your car look like? I mean, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just, just look at the areas. What's your desk look like? You young men, what's your dorm room look like? Does it look like a bomb went off in it? See, God's calling you to exercise dominion over the earth, and he's giving you this little 15 by 15 spot to practice. That's what I keep telling my boys. You, you, you're, you're being called to exercise dominion over the earth. 
And look at this little 15 foot, and you're sharing this 15 foot by 15 foot space, right? There are two of you now to double down on the work. And it still looks like this. That's, that's not biblical manhood. And biblical manhood is not wrapped up in the, because some of you are just born orderly, right? Either you had a dad that was really orderly, or you just, some of you are wired up and you almost drive people crazy in your life, right? So just some, some of you comes natural. I'm not saying that just because you've got that down, you're a man. I'm just saying it's what men do. They bring on Some men find this more natural than others. Some don't. But keep your domain in order. All of the places that are under your authority should bear the mark of your masculinity. And finally, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, but kill a bear or a lion. I mean, there are actually some places you can go do that. I don't mean really go kill a bear or a lion. But I, and I don't think that the story, this story, or even the story of David and Goliath is kill the bears and lions in your life or kill the Goliath in your life. Actually, in that story, David is a picture of Christ and Goliath is us and our sin. And so we always make this like, we're David and we're killing all the Goliaths in our life. That isn't even what that's about. It's about the gospel. It's about Christ pointing us to Christ and our need for a savior <clears throat> and Jesus pointing, David pointing us to Jesus. But all the same, God is going to bring these things into your life. And there may just be things in your life right now. There may be a relationship that has soured in your life and you know time has passed. You now to go make it right. They may be with your wife. For all I know, it may be with your ex-wife. For all I know, it may be with a teenage son or a teenage daughter. It could be that you've got a friend in your life and you've had all the coffee and all the dinners and all the cookouts and you keep meaning to share the gospel with them and you've done all the relationship building. It's just now it's just time to, to lay it out there and you've let it go for too long. God's put the challenge right there. He's put it right there. And this guy's ready to hear the gospel and you're nervous. Your heart's beating fast. That's all right. It may be starting a Bible study in your neighborhood or at work. It may be telling somebody you're just tired of hearing those jokes. I don't, I don't think that's funny. I don't know. It could be a challenge at work. It could be all sorts of things. But I want to encourage you that God is sovereign. And he knows right where you are. And even though it is very tempting in our day-to-day -day lives to believe this is random. The little things that happen. How, how, you know, I, got, I get stuck in a line of 20 people. It's not random. And I'm getting mad. Why am I getting mad? Because I'm impatient. What's God doing in my life? Trying to make me more patient. I'm in that line. God, God knows all those people are there. God knows I'm right there. And it's easy to believe this is just random and I just get in the car frustrated because now I'm going to be late. But what I really should be doing is acknowledging, no, God knows. And it's not just that he knows. He is orchestrating your life and my life. He's a big God. A big God. And if, one, if there's any one thing I would want to remind you of this weekend in your life that I'm sure is complicated. My life is complicated. My sin complicates my life. Don't get me the wrong way. I love all of my children, but they complicate my life. Right? I mean, there's a lot of them in that house, and they get bigger. They take up more space. They eat more food. They're everywhere. 
I'm like the psalmist, you know, where can I go from your presence? Uh, you know, I go, I go down to the basement, behold, they're there. I, I ascend up to the second floor, behold, they're there. <clears throat> so I'm sure your life is complicated, because my life is complicated. <clears throat> it's complicated by sin, by people, by the fall, by my own sin. It's complicated. But God's a big God, and he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to die on a cross for your sin, not just so that you would go to heaven, but so you would live life and it came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That doesn't mean perfectly, but it's a life that is purposed on him, that finds its purpose in him, and it's found in the context of living your life as a Christian man in particular. So, I'm not going <clears> to... <throat> I'm not going to sit around waiting for the local newspaper to endorse what we're doing here, endorse what the Bible says. The confusion is increasing, not decreasing. Challenges to what we would believe the Bible says about manhood are increasing, not decreasing. And so I'm not going to sit around waiting for some endorsement from the world. I'm going to listen to these words from a father to his son and be strong and prove myself a man. Let's pray together. Father, I'm, I'm thankful for every man in this room and then all of the people in his life that he represents. Friends, co-workers, his mother, father, his sister, brother, his children, his wife, sisters and brothers, cousins and uncles, all of his sphere of influence. I pray for those people right now and I pray that every man in this room, because he would have met with you this weekend, will be pointing everybody in his sphere to the gospel, how to live out the gospel, how to live a life full of grace, how to point to your mercy, how to depend upon your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would shower us with not just blessings, but with mercy and grace this, this weekend, with your wisdom, and that your Son, the Lord Jesus, would be glorified in how we talk about living out the gospel as men. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.